Thank you for joining me. Charles Moskowitz here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the historic and even present significance of monarchy as an institution. Uh, aristocratic rule by a nation over a nation, you know, something that obviously is very discredited in this country because of our own American Revolution, of course. We got rid of uh, King George III and established the Republic, and rightfully, of course. But I want to just revisit the whole question of monarchy in world history and uh, its significance and why it and its value, actually. Um, firstly, monarchy is something that has existed in every continent, in every civilization. It existed in Europe, it existed in Asia, Africa. The Native American tribes had monarchs, so they called them chiefs or whatever. Every nation has a variation of, of title. They were usually hereditary, but not always. In some cases, they'd be appointed. But either way, they all had monarchs. And um, it was an institution that for better or for worse, united a nation. It, 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 we had a coherence, a, a quality of, of, of centralization and, and identity for a nation state. And it transcended politics, um, at least theoretically. I mean, obviously the reality is it didn't, but in most cases, but nevertheless, I mean, just to use an example, in the United States, a monarch would not be either a Democrat or a Republican would not be a liberal or a conservative, would not be on the left or, or on the right. They wouldn't get involved in factional politics, as uh, James Madison would say, because they would have to represent, and they would represent, the entire nation. They would re represent all the people of that nation. They would have a unifying factor that um, even though we're squabbling over intricate details in politics, we support the king. The king is the one, is the foci, the central point upon which um, we express our admiration for our nation, which we look to for consistency. And that the king, putting aside the fact that many of them had absolute power and they were wrong and evil, nevertheless, they would be looked to to adjudicate questions of politics, at least behind the scenes, if not formally, and um, they would be respected as for playing that role. Whether or not they as individuals were to be respected is, of course, another question as well. But the point is that there is a value in that. <clears throat> there is a, it, it has a, a, it is, there is a worth in it. And that the attempts to abolish monarchy often are accompanied by the replacement of the monarch with, with communism in modern times and with a merge toward a world order which, um, which the monarch was a natural check against. It was part of the system of checks and balances against the encroaching power of the globalist traditionally and today. The nation states, let, let's just do a quick look at the Bible. The nation states were basically established when Nimrod tried to overthrow God in heaven by building the Tower of Babel and reach into the heaven, grab God by the throat, bring him down to earth and put him into a steel cage and then rule the universe as man. 
And God, of course, rebuked uh, Nimrod and, and destroyed his movement by destroying the Tower of Babel and scattering the nations to the four corners of the world, giving them all different languages. That was the beginning of sovereignty, the beginning of separate nationhood. And then, of course, the Bible goes into very intricate details with regard to the borders of nations, particularly the borders of the 12 tribes of Israel and where they were to reside and, and the, the between the Jordan River and the sea. And the, the, this is, a, in a sense, setting the stage for all of mankind to look at the very difficult, thorny, and at times fractious and warlike process of establishing national borders and national identity. Um, as far as kings go, the experiment with kings on the part of Israel was simply that Israel, once they we recaptured Canaan with the conquest of Joshua went through a period of that's called the judges where that you had basically eight or nine tribes squabbling for power fighting each other often sometimes unifying to face usually a common enemy and whose spirituality was fractured sometimes the closer they got to knowing God the better they were doing and the more prosperous they became and the they were on their holy mission, but then when they would backslide away from God, they would, um, you know, evil would uh, would overtake them, and they would end up losing, and the Philistines would come and, and, and smote them and all of that. And so they went to the prophet Samuel, and they asked for a king, and the prophet Samuel warned them, you know, the king will enslave your, your, your sons and, and violate your daughters and you know, do all these horrible things. And these are brilliant warnings against big government, by the way. It's an incredible thing to read. It's very prophetic <laughs> in every sense. But nevertheless, he did establish a king in Saul, which turned out to be a failure. Saul was not the right person. So he tried again and established the kingship under David. Now under David and his son Solomon, the kingdom thrived and it became powerful and it became, you know, a good solid um, player. Uh, they, they built the temple in Jerusalem. They, they've established um, theocratic powers with, with, with a high priest who would be separate from the king, by the way, and that together they would rule. In a way, the, the Roman Catholic Church imitates this and did for a thousand years, very successfully, by having a, a pope who is the vicar of Christ representing Jesus on earth who was the Messiah, and that the Pope would essentially maintain spiritual domain over the kings who had divine right to rule their nations, but who would answer to the Pope in terms of uh, their moral you know, ad attitude and the fact that um, the Pope represented their ability as individuals ultimately to, to achieve heaven and to have an afterlife and, to, uh, you know, and all those things, or, or they could lose that right if they were evil. So the, the combination of the, of the Pope and the kings was a, a balance between church and state that actually worked fairly well with obvious problems, but nevertheless, for a thousand years, between the emperorship of Constantine of, of, um, of Rome, when, when, when the empire became Christian, and, uh, and Martin Luther. And then, by the way, Martin Luther and his Protestant movement continued the concept of kings. They, instead of having a pope, they would have their own church. And the uh, king would continue to be under the 
auspices of heaven, you know, having to answer to the moral and ethical precepts of, of God as the church, as the respective churches saw that. And that thus you had the establishment of Protestant churches. Lutheranism became the church of various nations like Sweden and, and, and Prussia. Uh, the Church of England would become the Church of, the, of, of Great Britain, etc. I think that um, the Presbyterians were the Church of Scotland. I mean, it just, it kind of went like that, Dutch Reform in, in Holland. And, and in all of these cases, the king or the queen, it could be a woman and was often, or occasionally, would, would continue to be the unifying factor in the nation. Now, the same phenomena occurred in Africa. Every African tribe had a king. I mean, they called it something else. And in Asia. And one of the major falls from grace in the 20th century was the abolishment of the monarchy of, of China in 1911, when Sun Yat-sen, a socialist, came in and he abolished the, the monarchy. A monarchy that had gone back probably a thousand years. It went back to the Kublai Khan. The monarch of, of, of China represented the United Nation of China. It was a figure that all of the Chinese people could look to. He lived in the Forbidden City in Beijing. You know, it was, uh, you know, it represented something that transcended politics. And the result of the ab ab abolishment of that office would eventually lead to Mao Zedong and communism and the horrors of one of the most, if not the most brutal regime in world history, responsible for the murders of upwards of 50, 50, 60 million people. Um, Japan, on the other hand, held on to their monarch. Now, the problem with Japan was that the monarch in the late 1930s, the, the emperor, the, the shogun or whatever, whatever it's called, became um, basically under house arrest by the, um, the, the parliament, by the, camp, by the government and was told that he would be assassinated unless he did what they wanted. And that, that led to World War II. So you know, that, that brings up the question of how do you maintain independence for a monarch? How does the monarch keep an office that can be protected from the political whims and, and winds of the times in which they live? That's a very interesting question. But um, World War I saw the sweeping away of several monarchies in Europe. World War II saw the sweeping away of more monarchies in Europe. I mean, World War I led to the abolition of the Tsar. Now, Tsar Nicholas II was, you know, not maybe a, a great guy in many ways, but the country, he was loved by the country. He upheld the church. His motto was all things in Christ. He was a moral authority. Maybe he should have had his powers clipped a bit with some constitutional reforms. And that's exactly what did happen under Kerensky. But um, the, the removal of him, which was a consequence of World War I and the rise of communism, um, and then his, the murder of him and his family, the regicide, absolutely enthroned communism. Likewise, the removal of the, of the Kaiser of, of Germany, as bad as he was. You know, I mean, again, there could have been constitutional reforms put in. He could have been a constitutional monarch. But instead, by sweeping him away and throwing him into exile, that led to the, contributed to the rise of Hitler. So 
you know, you had in World War, at the end of World War II removals of more monarchs. You know, the removal of the monarchy of Italy, of all the Balkan states. They all had kings. And they all, in the case of the Balkan states, they all went communist. So, you know, this, you know, this was a, um, a problematic situation. I would point out even in Turkey, the, um, the removal of the Sultan, as bad as he was, Hamid, led to the Armenian genocide. It led to, you know, terrible atrocities. And then that the new young Turk government went on to remove the caliph, the head of the Islamic world, who was respected by all Muslims, and that led to a vacuum of power which contributed to the rise of radical Islam. That might not have happened had there been a caliph in place putting restraints on the various Muslim rulers around the world with, with uh, religious rulings and, and with an office that could be looked to to adjudicate religious questions instead of letting those questions be adjudicated by people like bin Laden. So. There, there's a great value to this idea of the monarch and then they, them working with a religious authority. And um, I would just end it by, by, by pointing out that the, the entire agenda of the Illuminati, which was established in 1776 in Ingolstadt in University in, Bavaria, in, in Munich, Bavaria, was to abolish the monarchs and to abolish the church and create a world order. Um, this isn't even controversial. This is standard history. This is um, a couple, about 10 years after the order was established. Their secret papers were captured by the Bavarian government and made public and then eventually put into a book, a couple of books, one by uh, Barrowell and one by uh, Robeson, where they show that this is exactly their agenda and that their agenda had everything to do with the establishment of secret societies in France that led to the French Revolution and the abolition of their monarch and the beheading of King Louis XVI, who again was a respected and revered figure in France and who then underwent a propaganda campaign to say, oh, he's evil and terrible and Marie Antoinette. You know, Louis XVI was very admired in the United States, by the way. Um, France was our main ally in the American Revolution the city of Louisville, Kentucky, is named after him. I mean, he was a very respected figure. And in 1789, he reconvened the, the Estates General, which essentially was the French Revolution. It happened without firing a shot. And uh, it, he recognized that he would be a constitutional monarch with a uh, constitution that was being written at the time. But the radicals took over the Estates General and they caused the reign of terror and his beheading. So, you know, the removal of the monarch of, of France created a terrible vacuum of power and the birth of the, first, the world's first communist regime. And it called itself, by the way, the word communist was coined at that time by a French radical by the name of Gratis Babouf. And, um, and thus you have the march away from this, this, this office, which offered stability and a move toward total government and communism. Do I think the United States, and by the way, Canada continues to have a monarch. Uh, do I think the United States should have a monarch? No. Uh, we made our decision in 1776. Uh, the real beef actually was not with King George III, it was with the parliament, which was implementing laws that were oppressive to Americans. 
Perhaps a, 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 an approach might have been to set up our own parliament or our own Congress and um, continue to keep George III as a limited monarch, but that probably wasn't possible. The point is that instead of having a monarch in, 17, in 1790, in 1789, we recognized the Republic of the U.S. Constitution. And the president was given powers that are somewhat similar to a monarch, but limited by a constitution, by a four-year term, and by all the systems of checks and balances. So, you know, that's worked out very well for the United States. Uh, I'm not suggesting here that monarchs should be brought back in other countries. I'm simply pointing out that there is a benefit to having an office that transcends politics, that is recognized as legitimate by all the people of that nation, and that is respected by the people of that nation. And that the movement to remove those offices was not pure. They were not, these were not necessarily evil people. Some of them were not good, but the point is that they could have been checked by constitutional power, uh, you know, balances. But either way, <clears throat> the movement to remove them was the problem. And the results have been historically pretty bad if you look at the history of the movements that replaced these monarchs, whether those movements be communism, Nazism, or radical Islam. Anyway, thanks for watching, everyone. Those are my thoughts for this afternoon. Have a great day.